Hi folks, I'm Alan Watts and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 14th of March 2012. For newcomers, help yourself to the free audios for download at cuttingthroughthematrix.com and you'll get a wealth of information that hopefully will change the way you think about reality in general and your own conditioning particularly because we've all had the same brainwashing from birth into uh, an artificial system run by experts at the top that have really covered all the bases. And uh, our, our cultures, uh, the change in our cultures are all uh, really deemed uh, necessary to control us all and bring us all together at the same time into this global world order system, basically. And it's been like that for an awful long time. At the top, you had the big bankers and eugenicists, of course. They're all eugenicists in the top banking positions. These are the international lenders themselves. And uh, they formed their own clubs at the beginning of the 20th century, actually late, late 19th century, and came up with the whole idea that uh, since they were already grabbing resources across the world using other countries' militaries to invade, just like today, then they should carry on doing so and eventually own all the world's resources and they would put it into, into a, a fake account, you might say, uh, an account that would pretend to be, uh, they'd, they'd hold for the world and they would become the ones that would dispense uh, even food itself to the world down the roads and all minerals and things that you buy. So basically it's a world order uh, run on economics in a sense with a eugenic program on it too. And right, they even have de- departments on the fate of man, the future of man, and they go through how obsolete humans became because of the machinery and the mechanization of really the industrial age and how it put so many out of work. And before that, of course, you had artisans going, getting put out of work too when the machines came in. So these guys literally worked down through the ages, always planning the future to ensure that themselves and their own offspring are still in charge of the future to come. And uh, the, the system that they want is a, perfect, a perfected world, uh, almost a post-lower-class uh, human-type society, definitely, and those who come through will be the ones who are necessary for the, the new age, as I like to call it. Uh, intellectuals, people who are really uh, scientifically orientated, and uh, that's really it in a nutshell. You can read their books. I've mentioned lots of them in those talks I give at cuttingthroughthemedias.com of the big players who took part in it and how they shaped the cultures of the world. And they altered them generationally. Every generation had its own culture updated for things to come. So when you're reading that too, remember you bring me to you every night, five nights a week at least, and uh, you can help me keep going by buying the books and discs at cuttingthroughthematrix.com because I don't um, sell anything else. I don't flog uh, anything that's going to keep you alive forever. And I don't have shares in any businesses that sell various products and so on. So I like depend upon you, and uh, you can buy the books and discs if you go into cuttingthroughmatrix.com. From the U.S. to Canada, you can use a personal check or international postal money order, 
or you can send cash or use PayPal. And across the world, Western Union, Union MoneyGram and PayPal once again. And I chronicle events and, and take it back into the past to show you that what's happening today was planned sometimes 50, sometimes 80 years ago, sometimes 100, uh, and by documentation as well, by the ones who, many who are long dead, who gave us the present culture you're living through right now, the ones who predicted this very stage and how society would be with single-parent families and that kind of stuff too. Many of them died off in the 40s and 50s in the last century. But they knew what they were bringing in. And here we are, folks, back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt, we're cutting through the matrix and I've gone over many times this uh, big agenda, this agenda for utopia for the elite themselves of course and uh, the technocrats they'll use to run the future, not not too far from now in fact because they want a big big cull and they've talked about this openly and I'll, I'll touch on some of the big boys who did talk about it openly tonight if I have time. Uh, and they were talking about this in the 1920s onwards, how they'd have to vastly reduce the populations and in their inner circles. They always give stuff for their outer circles to print in public, but in the inner circles they, they go much, much further and deeper talking about, and they get professors in to talk about the different ages that have come and gone from Stone Ages to Bronze Ages and Iron Ages and things like that, right down to the Industrial Era, which, as I say, did away with so many uh, craftsmen and artisans and put them all out of uh, work forever, basically. And then you go post-industrial, and then all that lot of work. The factories are out of work as well, because you've got new uh, human capital, they call it, in China. So they're always wondering what to do with the rest of us, you see, who are technically, in their terms, obsolete, because they run on secular humanism, and what they call being very pragmatic about the purpose of humanity. Because for them, you see, there's always a purpose for humanity. And we don't just exist for the sake of living. Uh, no, no, we have a purpose, you see. And the ones at the top believe that they were the ones who were chosen to lead the purpose. And they, they use uh, Darwinism uh, as a flag almost for their cause. And they run UNESCO and a whole bunch of organizations at the United Nations. They work closely with and are members of the Council on Foreign Relations and the Royal Institute of International Affairs, always have been for, for generations. And uh, they're still going at it. But one way was to bring down the population. Now, they've been very successful with creating infertility in men. And I've, gone, I've done many uh, articles about that from their own uh, websites, their own newspapers and journals, to do with the fact that uh, there's such as a disappearing male that was done on CBC television. And they show you that the male today has very little active sperm, functioning sperm, compared to the 1950s model. And uh, what what they do have is active, is often very deformed with with two tails and things like that, can't even find its target. So this did not happen by coincidence, because uh, back in the 20s they talked about using food and even drugs to basically cause infertility and bring down the populations. You cannot have such coincidences happening 
when they mandate it at the top and at least speculate on it at, at world meetings and then it actually comes into fruition. So it's been done because people would not volunteer for such things, obviously. But when we go into uh, other methods too of making you dumb and compliant, because that is the function of the average citizen at the bottom, is to be dumb and compliant. So I'll touch on that tonight too. But uh, here's an article here, and it's to do with something that happened in 2004 in, Eng- in Cornwall in England. And another one happened only a couple of years ago. I remember reading about it too. Very, very similar in England. But it says here, a coroner has criticized a water authority for gambling with the lives of 20,000 people by not telling them that for more than a, a fortnight, two weeks, about Britain's worst mass poisoning by your water company. West Somerset coroner Michael Rose criticized the Southwest Water Authority as they gave his verdict on the death of Carol Cross. Mrs. Cross, 59, died in 2004 from a rare disorder usually associated with much older people suffering from Alzheimer's disease. Now, Alzheimer's was unknown at one point. You had various pre-senial dementias, as they call them, and uh, they were not that common either. And from about 1960s, late 60s onwards, they kind of sped up and became very common because something obviously happened to them. Nothing happens on a mass scale at the same time without a cause. And the cause is either inoculations, food or something. Something's got into the body. Simple detective work, you see. Anyway, so she had been living in the, the Camelford area of North Cornwall in July 1988 when the poisoning occurred. She was one of 20,000 customers affected when a relief truck driver mistakenly added 20,000 tons. 20,000 tons of aluminium sulphate to the drinking water at the Lower Moor Treatment Works. The coroner recorded a lengthy narrative verdict in which he said there was a very real possibility that the ingestion, the ingestion of aluminium by Mrs. Cross had contributed to her death. Well, they always find it in the, the brains of Alzheimer's patients, high quantities of aluminium. That's what they call it in Britain. The inquest, which first began November 2010, heard that a post-mortem examination later found high levels of aluminium in Mrs. Cross's brain. The inquest was told that for more than two weeks, Southwest Water Authority, which ran the treatment works, didn't tell the public the cause of the poisoning and insisted the water was safe to drink. Well, these are the guys that are looking after you, and, and oh, who are you going to save themselves or you? So, so this lie, you see. Many people reported rashes, diarrhea, mouth ulcers, and other health problems after drinking the water or bathing in it. The water became so polluted in the first few hours that customers reported hairs sticking to their body like superglue as they got out of the bath. Customers flooded the switchboard of the water authority but were told it was safe and it was has been claimed that some were even advised to boil the water which increased the levels of aluminium still further. Mrs. Cross, who lived on the outskirts of the town and later moved to Dulverton in Somerset, died in Taunton's Musgrove Park Hospital. She suffered from a rare neurological disease, cerebral amyloid angiopathy, and her husband, Dr. Doug Cross, believes her exposures to high levels of aluminium during the incident caused her death 16 years later. And Dr. Cross, who now lives in Cumbria, did not attend the hearing in Taunton, Somerset. But anyway... Uh, this is the stuff that's dumped in your water in lesser doses, you see. And, of course, we all know about um, 
these different things with fluoride and aluminum and all the rest of it that they dump in there. These are poisonings. They're medicating the water. See, you're drinking water should not need medication. And that's the first point. When do the authorities have the right to medicate you? And you have to go into all of the effects of the medication, as they want to call it, because it's been used for nearly a 100 years for dumbing people down. That's really what the stuff does to you. It makes you very compliant. And that's what they want at the top. So that's what happens when they put a bit too much in it at one time. But it's not the first time trucks have arrived uh, in the middle of the night and no one's there to tell them which dock to dump it in and they dump it in the wrong one. This isn't the first time this has happened. And I'm sure there's been other instances where they haven't told the public at all or just kept lying, you know. Now, Getting back to eugenics, this is all part of eugenics too, by the way, and population control, and creating a public that are very obedient. And this article was uh, a report to the Club of Rome in 1976, and it's called Rio Reshaping the International Order. Uh, so R-I-O. Public opinion is no phenomenon sui generic. It is in part the result of government policies and by definition. So for the harder thinking, I'll just repeat that because it's you have to catch this off the bat. Public opinion is no phenomenon. It just happens by itself, right? It is in part the result of government policies and by definition, politicians cannot hide behind their own creation. If some sectors of public opinion in the industrialized countries are immersed in the rhetoric and slogans associated with misunderstanding, then much of this may be inherited from their political leaders. And if these leaders are in part responsible for a situation which impedes acceptance of the need for change, then they themselves must be held responsible for changing the situation. And as I say, that was... um, Reshaping the International Order, a report to the Club of Rome, 1976, admitting uh, that they're in, they're in charge of giving you your ideas and your thoughts and opinions. And at that time, they were saying that they'd have to do a better, a better job because some folks still had their own opinions. They couldn't have that. You see, couldn't have that. And as I say, then you go into the various act, um, the characters who were involved in UNESCO. Now, UNESCO, um, United Nations Educational and Scientific Order, basically, was set up, and Aldous Huxley, uh, Julian Huxley, sorry, Aldous, his brother, was the first CEO. And Julian Huxley, remember the Huxleys came, the grandfather was Sir Thomas Huxley, who was called Darwin's bulldog. He was the best pal of Darwin and took up this whole championing of not just evolution, but eugenics. That's what it was all about. Forget evolution. It was all about eugenics. Evolution was an excuse, you see. And Julian wrote lots of articles and books about the need to interfere with eugenics because there were too many unfit around the world. He belonged to the eugenics associations in the U.S. and Britain and talked and wrote lots about bringing down the population. He was also into zoology because he used animals. Then said man is just another animal. Study animals and we'll find ways to, to really uh, manipulate the humans. He was also a champion for using UNESCO and its other organizations within the United Nations to bring down the population of the planet under the guise of, of uh, women's health, as he called it, which was abortion across the world. 
not because to help women free themselves, which was the slogans they all used, but to, to drastically reduce the population of what he said were the unfit and the primitive. That's why. Forget all these slogans of the feminists are all paid to, to yell and scream. The fact is, this is part of an agenda. And you, you see here too, this article is part here, taking the techniques of persuasion and information and true propaganda that we have learned to apply nationally in war and deliberately bending them to the international tasks of peace, if necessary, utilizing them as Lenin envisaged to overcome the resistance of millions to, to desirable change. Now, the ones at the top decide what's desirable change. Using drama, that's your movies, to reveal reality and art as a method by which, in Sir Stephen Talent's words, truth becomes impressive and living principle of action. Back with more of this article when I come back from this break. Hi folks, I'm back, cutting through the matrix, reading uh, a quote from uh, a paragraph from UNESCO, its purpose and philosophy. And uh, as I say, it's, um, you find that Huxley was the one behind this. He, wrote, he said this and wrote it. He says, says, taking the techniques of persuasion and information and true propaganda, that's real mind-bending stuff, that we've learned to apply nationally in war. Remember, the first casualty of war is, is the truth. And deliberately bending them to the international tasks of peace if necessary, utilizing them as Lenin envisaged to overcome the resistance of millions to desirable change, using drama to reveal reality and art as a method by which, in Sir Stephen Talent's words, truth becomes impressive and living principles of action, and aiming to produce that concerted effort, which, to quote Grierson once more, needs a background of faith and a sense of destiny. This must be a mass philosophy, a mass creed, and it must and it can never be achieved without the use of the media of mass communications. UNESCO, in the press of its detailed work, must never forget this enormous fact. So, in other words, using massive propaganda staged to bend the mind and to get everyone else, the victims of the eugenical program, to go along with everything. Consent, in other words. And he called it um, evolutionary humanism. And he was in with uh, Charles Galton, Darwin, and others. Now, Charles Galton, of course, and Darwin uh, was also head of the Eugenic Society, and then it was taken over again by Huxley. They sort of swapped chairs all the time. But from the next million years, which is a book written by Charles Galton Darwin in the 1950s, and he was a, a physicist, a natural scientist that worked on the Manhattan Project, and uh, he, he still held dearly to Darwin's initial push of uh, eugenics, basically. That's what the whole uh, thing about was to do with Darwin. It was eugenics, not just the evolution of man, but eugenics itself. But for the next million years, it says, the detailed march of history will depend a great deal on the creeds held by the various branches of the human race. It cannot be presumed with any confidence that purely superstitious creeds will always be rejected by civilized communities in view of the extraordinary credulity shown even now by many reputedly educated people. It's true that there may not be as many at the present time whose actions are guided by an inspection of the entrails of a sacrificial bull, but the progress has not been very great, for there are still many believers in palmistry and astrology. 
It is to be expected then that in the future, as in the past, there will be superstitions which will notably affect the course of history, and some of them, such as the ancestor worship, will have direct effects on the development of the human species. But superstitious creeds will hardly be held by the highly intelligent. And it's precisely the creed of these that matters. Is it possible that there should arise a eugenic creed, which, perhaps working through what I have called the method of unconscious selection, should concern itself with improvement of the inherent nature of man, instead of resting content with merely giving him good but impermanent acquired characters? Without such a creed, man's nature will only be changed through the blind operation of natural selection. With it, he might aspire to do something towards really changing his destiny. So, they're talking about the creed at the top, the ones who are basically humanists, secular humanism, and who are pragmatic. These are the guys who gave you and are teaching all your children uh, situational ethics at school and moral relativity. Uh, you know, five in a boat, you're all, you have no food. The one who is sick, should you kill him and eat him? That kind of stuff. That's that's. These are the guys who are ruling the world. These are the guys who work with the military uh, before the battles. They plan long-term strategies, war after war, uh, and bring it down to collateral damage. Uh, and how many should they expect to lose, etc., etc. So they're cold-hearted, uh, psychopathic types, and they do interbreed, and definitely psychopathy uh, can also be hereditary. There's no doubt about it. So I'll put up tonight links to UNESCO, its purpose and its philosophy by Julian Huxley, the first director general of UNESCO, and it was published at Washington, D.C., Public Affairs Press in 1947. And it's quite interesting going through it all. There's a lot, a lot in it. Um, because he, he talks about the need to bring down the population of the world through different means and how education would be used as a function of a world society. So an, an, a, a world education must be standardized across the whole planet for everyone. So it, you'd all grow up in the same conditioned reality and, and accept whatever they had planned for you. And um, he says that... Uh, the, f- the fact has also been emphasized by the development of intelligence testing, and that was done by G- uh, Galton, who faked his results, by the way, because he wanted to prove that the working class were vastly inferior to the upper class, so he fudged all his statistics. They're still using the same, the same tests today in the schools. But it says here, the fact has also been emphasized by the development of intelligence testing. Some authorities in this field going so far as to assert that only 10 to 20% of the population are capable of pro- profiting by a university course. As his peace must therefore be founded, if not to fail, upon the intellectual and moral solidarity of mankind. In the forefront is set UNESCO's collaboration in the work of advancing the mutual knowledge and understanding of peoples through all means of mass communication. Again, mass communication. But as I say, when you get down to it, he also talks about population control. He had population control on his brain. And remember, he belonged to the eugenic society. He was all for the sterilizing of uh, the unfit, as he called them. You understand, these are the characters who gave Hitler his ideas. They were on the go long before Hitler, through various organizations. In fact, Hitler simply copied the eugenics program that they'd set up in, in mainly the U.S. Really something else. Back with more after this break.
You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. I'm back, and we're cutting through the matrix, reading an article by Julian Huxley for UNESCO about the purpose of UNESCO, this wonderful United Nations organization. And it says, there are two tasks for the mass media division of UNESCO. I've mentioned before, they just hand out uh, handouts to, to the, all the media now, and they're suddenly published, and, uh, and that becomes just another article that you think is written by some independent journalist. No, there's a handouts. Most of the stuff that is in general media now are simply handouts, except the trivia. But it says, a specialist one is to enlist the press and radio and the cinema, and that was television too, to the fullest extent in the service of formal and adult education. By that, I mean continuous education, lifelong, for updates on, on your political correctness as they bring new things into, into view. Of science and learning, of art and culture, the general one is to see that these agencies are used to both uh, con- contribute to mutual comprehension between nations and cultures and also to promote the, the growth of a common outlook shared by all nations and cultures. And the conclusion, he says, is the task before UNESCO is to help the emergence of a single world culture with its own philosophy and background of ideas and with its own broad purpose. This is opportune since this is the first time in history that the scaffolding and mechanisms for world unification have become available and also the first time that man has had the means of laying a worldwide foundation for the minimum, minimum physical welfare of the entire human species. And it is necessary for, at the moment, two opposing philosophies of life. You understand what he's really saying here for those who are thinking? Minimum physical welfare, it was under the Department of Health, the World Health Organization at the United Nations. That's what the world is to be reduced down to with Obamacare, the British uh, um, health system, same thing. Provide for the minimum physical welfare. That's also food, by the way, of the entire human species. That's what they're guaranteeing you, minimum. And it is necessary for the moment that two opposing philosophies of life confront each other from the West and from the East. That was capitalism and communism. It is necessary for, at the moment, two opposing philosophies of life confront each other from the West and from the East. That's the dialectic, you see. And that's why you had the long Cold War. And that's why you had the Rees Commission come out and with its conclusions that the big foundations that apparently were founding what seemed to be communist movements within America and Britain and elsewhere. Uh, and these foundations, some of the CEOs actually admitted it, and it was read out in Congress. The Ford Foundation said, uh, CEO said, it says, yes, we, we, our job is to bring in the culture of the Soviets and blend it so well with that of the West that they'll be, become one in the end. And so you'll be ruled by a fascist group on the top, the, the bunch, UNESCO and so on, and the, and the United Nations. Uh, but we'll all live in a form of collectivism at the bottom, getting minimal f- food, minimal health care, etc., etc. And he says it was necessary, it is necessary for at the moment two opposing philosophies of life confront each other. That was a dialectic process. Thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. So, 
He says, you may categorize the two philosophies as two supranationalisms or as individualism versus collectivism or as the American versus the Russian way of life or as capitalism versus communism or as Christianity versus Marxism. Can these opposites be reconciled, this antithesis be resolved in a higher synthesis? I believe not only that this can happen, but that through the inexorable dialectic of evolution, it must happen. And that's what your whole Cold War was all about. In pursuing this aim, we must ensure dogma, whether it be theological dogma or Marxist dogma. East and West will not agree on the basis of the future if they merely hurl at each other the fixed ideas of the past. For that is what dogmas are, the crystallizations of some dominant system of thought of a particular epoch. A dogma may, of course, crystallize tried and valid experience, but if it be dogma, it does so in a way which is rigid, uncompromising, and intolerant. If we to achieve progress, we must learn to uncrystallize our dogma, be very flexible, etc. But I'll put this link up tonight, as I say. And it's really interesting to, to go back into the history of the organizations that are still in existence today and still working towards the, the same future and how they've managed to bring in their mass um, sterilization across third world countries under the guise of women's rights, uh, you know, and all that stuff, and abortions too. Because they're the most racist, uh, not just uh, creed racist, but they're, they're racist to the extent of classes, believe you me. It's a, it's a class thing with them. And they're, they're working very well on it. As I say, most of the young guys now have a fraction of the, the sperm that guys had in the 1950s. And what they do have is utterly dysfunctional and deformed. Deformed. That didn't happen by itself, folks. And it's across the world now. This article here, I'll put up two, is from John Taylor Gatto, The Public School Nightmare. Why fix a system designed to destroy individual thought? And it says, I want you to consider the frightening possibility we're spending far too much money on schooling and not too little. I want you to consider that we have too many people employed and interfering with the way children grow up. That isn't that a fact, all these government agencies. And that all this money and all these people, all this time we take care of children's lives and away from their homes and families and neighborhoods and private explorations gets in the way of education. That seems radical, I know. Surely in modern technological society, it is the quantity of schooling and the amount of money you spend on it that buys value. And yet last year, St. Louis, I heard, in St. Louis, I heard a, a vice president of IBM tell an audience of people assembled to redesign the process of teacher certification. Then in his opinion, this country become computer literate by self-teaching, not through any actions of school. He said 45 million people were com- comfortable with computers who had learned through dozens of non-systematic strategies, none of them very formal. If schools had preempted the right to teach computer use, we would be in a horrible mess right now instead of leading the world in this literacy. So then he compares it with Sweden, Sweden and so on, where they don't go to school until they're seven years of age and they leave earlier than the ones in the West and so on and so on. I'll put this, this article up as he shows you the techniques of how your mind is swayed to look upon Japan and countries like that, where they put in way more time at school, uh, even per day, never mind years. And it says, why are they doing this? Why not point to Sweden and say, well, look, Sweden's got less time at school, and you don't start till you're seven, and you leave when you're earlier. It's because they want you to be tied up in school forever. That's why. And it explains why that works in the whole 
purpose behind it. And he also explains a lot of the history that it came from. And how in 1806, when Napoleon's amateur soldiers beat the professional soldiers of Prussia at the Battle of Jena, he says, when your business is selling soldiers, losing a battle like that is serious. Almost immediately afterwards, a German philosopher named Fichte, Fichte, by the way, uh, literally was one hell of a demon, and uh, uh, there's a lot of them really stuck to his particular schooling today. Anyway, Fichte delivered his famous address to the German nation, which became one of the most influential documents in modern history. In effect, he told the Prussian people that the party was over and that the nation would have to shape up through a new utopian institution of forced schooling in which everyone would learn to take orders. So the world got compulsive schooling at the end of a state bayonet for the first time in human history. Modern forced schooling started in Prussia in 1819, with a clear vision of what centralized schools could l- deliver and should deliver. Obedient soldiers to the army, obedient workers to the mines, well-subordinated civil servants to the government, well-subordinated clerks to industry, and five citizens who thought alike about major issues, because they're all getting the same information from the same sources. They're betters, the elites, you see. And schools should create an artificial national consensus on matters that have been worked out in advance by leading German families at the head uh, of institutions. Schools should create unity amongst all the German states, eventually unifying them into greater Prussia. It's so easy to get a child and brainwash them, isn't it? It's so darned easy. And that's been known forever. And this article here is about homeschooling too. There's a lot of folk all across the world now really into homeschooling. And some of them in Sweden, for instance, are getting hammered because Sweden is such a socialistic state. And, of course, if you just uh, talk loudly to a child that's being disobedient, uh, that, that can mean the child can get lifted from your home. No kidding. But it says, uh, the people never give up their liberty, but under some delusion. And that's from Edmund Burke. And... That's how they started off the conference. It is the nature and intent of that delusion which I want to explore in this talk in the hope of better enabling us to know what it might be worthwhile to attempt to do to improve conditions for us at home as home educators and what might be hopeless or action or worse. Please bear with me if what follows does not at first seem to have much to do with home education. I promise I will try to justify its inclusion. The state is a principal manufactory of mass delusion. And almost everything in it does have this quality of appearing to be one thing, but really being another. And isn't that the truth? It's usually an opposite thing. Parliaments are really now reduced to little more than pantomime stage to entertain us with the illusion of sovereign government we voted for, as it is simply dresses, it dresses up and puts into place the directors of global governance to which it is signed up and legally committed to. And that's true. Uh, they've all signed on to that in 1946 at the United Nations meeting in San Francisco. Much of what passes for national policy can be found in the EC Lisbon 10-year strategies, the Lisbon Treaty that did for the Economic Union. And you'll find the 10-year strategies, one, and in the United Nations Agenda 21, for example. But these are not the only sources. There's a vast, bewildering world of more institutions than it is possible to imagine, let alone remember out there, all dedicated to expertly determining for us how we shall live, what we will think and believe and even feel about it all. Web surfs uh, through web surf through this amorous morass sometimes if you've never done so, and you will begin to understand your intended place in the totally managed world. 
Only the other day I stumbled across the International Union of Local Authorities. Did you know there was an International Union of Local Authorities, folks? Did you? You know how old it is? 98 years it's been on the go. 98 years. It says, pause to take in the possibility of anachronism here. If you've ever wondered how local government in one country can manage to oppress home educators in seemingly identical ways with identical prejudices and modus operandi, then here is a contender for one efficient mechanism for globalizing bad practice. Amusingly, in attempting to resource this organization, I fell over another couple in the same field before finding my way back to this one. One of them cheerfully informed me that half the legislation affecting local government comes from the EC. 98 years. Can you believe that? Because of the International Association of Mayors and, and on and on it goes. So even institutions of local and national government itself, as we're taught to understand them, are mostly a delusion. The real power and planning happens elsewhere behind the scenes, and national government is reduced now to puppet status the world over. And that really is true because I've outsourced most of the departments to these big foundations and organizations. Very few major events of the past have occurred in the absence of conspiracies. And that's what G. Edward Griffin pointed out. And says, to think that our modern age must be an exception is not rational. If we don't know this, then perhaps our own educations in history have been somewhat lacking. The use of this term as ridicule of critics of the state is undesirable as a good example how, of how what pass for our own thoughts are handed to us by the state. Well, isn't that what Julian Huxley was saying in that uh, previous article I said? Deception is a state of mind and the mind of state, wrote James Angleton, head of counterintelligence at the CIA, from 1954 to 1974, who was in a position to know, I think. It is an indefensible and uh, demonstrable nonsense to apply the term conspiracy theory to what can be so easily demonstrated to be the case from the very architects themselves. Aldous Huxley knew uh, what he was writing about in Brave New World because his whole family were, were world controller class and intelligentsia. His director of the Central London Hatchery and Conditioning Centre explains, at last the child's mind is these suggestions, uh, and the sum of the suggestions is the child's mind. And not the child's mind only, the adult's mind to all his lifelong, his lifelong education and indoctrination. The mind that judges and desires and decides made up of these suggestions, but all these suggestions are our suggestions, suggestions from the state. Julian Huxley, Huxley's older brother, was the first director of UNESCO, United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization. He wrote his mission statement in 46, in which he said, in his educational program, it can stress the ultimate need for the world, political unity, and familiarize all peoples with the implications of the transfer of full sovereignty from separate nations to a world organization. It is not possible to reconcile this statement with fighting for king and country, which was therefore a con, these being slated obsolescence even as the war was being fought and indeed long before that. The United Nations and its various agencies, uh, through its 1,298 treaties that you've all signed, all your governments have signed 1,298 treaties, that national governments are signed up to implementing in domestic law is the global governance and its founding documents as above and other sources reveal that this was always its mission. 
a not dissimilar ambition to Hitler just defeated unification mission also, but such unification was never going to come about through military conquest. War did provide the excuse for implementing much of the same agenda through peaceful means, and how we have come to understand the mission of the United Nations as world peacekeeper and thus feel uh, such affiliation, gratitude and reverence for it. It's not too cynical, unfortunately, to see the two world wars of the 20th century as a manufacture of a problem justifying the solution, which is the UN, which turns out to be uh, what it seems to, what it seems at all, uh, doesn't turn out to be what it seems to be, but merely a similar world conquest ambition in disguise. And that's what it is. That's what the United Nations is. For world conquest. Indeed, the League of Nations formed after World War I was a prototype of the UN and its International Commission on Intellectual Cooperation, which doesn't sound any less totalitarian, and its implications was simply rebranded as UNESCO. World War II therefore served to further advance a pre-existence covert agenda. It was as necessary for the success of the UN and its one world government agenda as 9-11 was necessary for the Patriot Acts and the rest of the destruction of civil liberties in America and across the globe since then. And this one goes on and on quite a bit too. But localism and all these things as well uh, is, is just the next part of it. It's called communitarianism. That's a collectivist part that, that uh, Julian Huxley talked about. Uh, but uh, it's run by a super elite. I'll also put up tonight as well at cuttingthroughmedics.com uh, this first uh, report out of today's meeting uh, from the big organizations and uh, that run the world. They had their at Washington, D.C. today and tomorrow. Hi, folks. I'm Alan Watt, cutting through the matrix. And just before I go to caller... Um, as I say, the Council of Councils is having their first world meeting in Washington, D.C. It's run by the Council on Foreign Relations, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, and basically it's all their other organizations across the world, the ones who advise all the different governments as to what to do. So they're having their big meeting right now. I'll put up the first report from their speeches today, and some of the attendees were at it, all the big players, of course. And... Um, you can make uh, from that what you will. They're pretty blatant if you get their drift of where they're going, uh, about what they're going to do, and so on. Now, I'll take Steve from Oregon, if he's there. Yes, I'm here, Alan. Let's go quick. Uh, yep. I'll be brief and articulate. Number one is I appreciate you, and uh, I'm bored of everybody. I don't think I'll get bored of you. Uh, I, uh, that, that's that point, okay? And then the other one is, First, I want to talk about one thing that I learned is the queenship. Now, I never knew about this. Something brought it to my attention. And I started looking into it, and I and there's like five levels of all this queenship that she does. And I just wanted to give one point, but I have another one I'd rather, rather talk about. But then I look at they gave the queenship to the Beatles. Paul McCartney kept his, and so he meets with Bush and Obama. John McCart- I mean, John Lennon gave his back, and he's dead. So yeah. first, I wanted to say that. Well, actually, Paul McCartney also bought his his uh, night ship at that time. Tony Blair was in, and for forty grand donated to the Labour Party, he'd put you forward uh, to get a night ship. Yeah. Right. So let me go on to the next one, and I'll let you go. Is I want to talk about LSD. 
Now, I'm 54 years old. I'm doing good. My kids are 22 and 24, doing great. We're not in school loans. All the stuff that you talk about, we all know. My wife, everything. So, and I got property and goats, chickens, whatever. So, I'm fine, but kind of, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah, I understand all you're talking about. But when I was in my 20s, I did LSD, and I did it a lot. But what I did is if I didn't want to watch Walls Milk like my friends did, I'm going, this is stupid, you know. I want to be in control of my life. And so what I did is what was raw back then, you know, I would cut it into, you know, quarters. 50 cents a day is what it cost me. I did it almost every day, you know. And I'm telling you, I really liked it. But once he, he got, that person who was selling it to me got caught. Luckily, he only got probation. But I just quit, you know. I just quit. I didn't know withdrawals. I had nothing. And one of the things that came to my mind when I quit is that it was almost taken as saying, you don't need LSD. You can do this on your own. You yeah. can do it by looking at the trees. You can do it by this and you can do it by that. But it's hard because they're pulling it so hard. And so I just wanted to, and I think I'm done and I'll let you talk now. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting too that McCartney and the Beatles did uh, LSD, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. That's, how you, that's also how you get a knighthood too was for promoting the drugs. But I don't know that the early stuff that came out of LSD was really, really potent stuff. And uh, I can remember girls at rock concerts walking into a lake at one point and drowning themselves. And uh, friends of mine who actually walked out a second-story window and crawled along a telegraph wire and then reached for a star and uh, fell down two floors onto some concrete. So that was very common as well. And uh, different folk uh, would affect in different ways as well. Some really bad trips. Some people would take one dose of it and end up with uh, drug-induced schizophrenia. They kept getting flashbacks and seeing monsters uh, for years later. Just one dose. Just depends upon yourself, you see. But um, it's not something I would certainly advise. But it was promoted from the top, the top down, as I say, even through the music. Big time by the BBC. All the old Etonians pushed this stuff on the population. So it's uh, certainly had an effect. But thanks for calling. And from John, Canada, Ronnie in Oregon, uh, maybe you can call tomorrow. From Hamish, myself, from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me. Your God, your God, go with you.